Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Thanks for rejoining us uh, for this segment of the Sunday Wire. And uh, as as mentioned before the break, uh, we've got a very special guest with us on the live link. Her name is Dr. Lisa Johnson. She's a clinical psychologist from Sydney, Australia, and she is uh, advocating on behalf of, of Julian Assange, this is a very important issue that we mentioned before the break. It is the health of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who's currently in detention in Belmarsh Prison in southeast London. And uh, we've got her on the line uh, right now to talk about this issue. Uh, hello, Lisa. Hi, Patrick. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Yeah, no, it's, that's our pleasure. Uh, is our pleasure, Lisa. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. It's a very important issue. I mean, I've alluded to this. Many have alluded to this and, mm. and talked about it as a, as a possible concern uh, for the last uh, six or seven months or longer than that. People have, have been concerned about this uh, really since uh, Julian Assange has entered the Ecuadorian embassy when he sought political asylum there seven years before he was uh, taken into custody by the by the British authorities, it's always been a concern, Lisa. Mm. But but looking at this report, and I know that uh, there'll be a report released, and n- news stories will will start seeing them tomorrow, probably this week. Mm. Um, there's a number of doctors, Lisa, that also share this concern. Not talking about one or two. No, got, we have sixty doctors and and health professionals. Some of them extremely extremely well qualified at the at the at the top of their uh, profession. Yeah, that's right. What, what are they saying about this issue, Lisa? Well, what they've done is on Friday, it's over 65 doctors, and as you say, some very eminent doctors in there, sent a letter to the UK Home Secretary um, calling for urgent action to protect Julian Assange's life. And you know, the letter's warning the UK government that there may be serious consequences if Julian Assange isn't moved from Belmarsh Prison to an appropriate hospital setting where he can be treated by a specialist medical team. Um, and that is saying that based on the currently publicly available evidence, there are very real concerns that Julian Assange may die in prison. Um, there are another number of reasons for thinking that, which we could go into. Um, the letter also details the chronology of Julian Assange's um, health difficulties and his medical neglect and the obstruction of him being able to sort of access his human right to health by the UK government. Um, and along the way, there have been a number of warnings and there's been a number of junctures at which organisations like the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention and Human Rights Watch have called on the UK government to remove the threat of US extradition because Julian Assange has been placed in a position where he's needed to choose between either being extradited to the United States or his health suffering. And then that's really reached a crisis now in Belmarsh Prison, which is what the letter was talking about. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a number of reasons for these doctors to be saying that um, there, are, there are very real reasons to be concerned about Julian Assange's life. And uh, the, letter, the letter followed the case management hearing, I think it was on the 21st of October, Mm-hmm. when um, Julian Assange was you know, looking very frail and fragile and struggled to answer basic questions about his name and his date of birth, which alarmed a lot of people present in the court. Um, and then after that, on the 1st of November, Nils Meltzer, the UN Rapporteur on Torture, issued a statement warning that if, um, you know, if the UK government doesn't change course, 
immediately and you know, relieve the inhumane conditions under which Julian Assange is being held, that he may soon die as a result. And that's very serious warning coming from the world's designated authority on torture. So you know, the, the the broader backdrop is that, um, you know, Julian Assange has been assessed by Nils Meltzer and by a medical and psychiatric ex- expert back in May as showing all symptoms typical for someone who's been exposed to prolonged psychological torture. And since then, he's been subjected to more psychological torture and, you know, intensified, essentially, psychological torture, all of the conditions that were um, causing him to suffer from psychological torture have intensified the, um, you know, the arbitrary detention is still there. The, U- the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention in um, 2019, when the 50-week sentence was imposed, said that this is a continuation of arbitrary deprivation of liberty um, in, in, you know, everyday language, I guess that's, you know, false imprisonment. Um, and so, and since then, he's been held in isolation, suffering the extreme stress of UX extradition proceedings without being able to inspect the evidence against him, without having access to computer facilities and so on that he needs, access to his lawyers. So all of those things are um, rendering him extremely helpless under a situation of extreme threat. So the stress that he's under is intensified to the extent that uh, shortly after the US announced its um, Espionage Act charges, he wasn't even able to appear via video link for a court hearing. He became so unwell. So the the, the problem with you know, the medical problem and the, the medical sort of a crisis and emergency with somebody who has been suffering from psychological torture for a prolonged period is that Psychological torture doesn't just affect people uh, psychologically and cognitively. It also causes physical harm and because what it does is it places, places people in a state of uh, constant physiological arousal. It's a constant physiological stress response that's happening. And that, when it's persistently activated, the stress physiology is persistently activated it can cause very serious health problems, um, which could include cancer or cardiovascular pathology, diseases related to immunosuppression. And there's no way to predict with any specificity when or exactly how that might strike a person. It could strike at any time. So it's essentially playing Russian roulette with Julian Assange's life to hold him, continue to hold him in Belmarsh Prison, um, you know, under these inhumane conditions that Nils Meltzer has described as um, you know, very oppressive and conditions of isolation and oppress- oppression and surveillance, um, which are just, uh, you know, exacerbating the, the pressures that he's already under. So the letter is calling for him to be urgently and immediately transferred from Belmarsh Hospital on medical grounds and also giving the UK government a heads up that... Um, uh, you know, that, that it's their opportunity to back out of this really reckless and dangerous path that they're on with Julian Assange. Yes, yeah. Well, the human rights argument is, it's it's so clear on its face. And mm. the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Nils Melzer, has, has outlined this very clearly in depth, in detail. And I would think that for any other so-called dissident or any other uh, political prisoner or any other high profile person from any other country especially countries that are seen as uh, enemies of of the US and and the UK 
any dissident, there would be outrage and it would just mm. be all over the press. There would be demands. Look at what the U.S. has done in the name of uh, uh, Sergei Magnitsky. They passed mm. legislation uh, yes. in the name of Magnitsky. And this is happening to Julian Assange and you hear absolutely nothing. It's as if international law and human rights, some, for some reason, doesn't apply Mm. in this case. It's yeah, it's extraordinary. And there's an extraordinary psychological blind spot that goes along with that. Um, so there's the there's the media blackout, essentially. I'm not, it's not an entire blackout, but it's, it's grossly underreported. The, um, the statements and reports that Nils Meltzer has issued and you're, you're, the international law being ignored doesn't seem to be of concern to the media particularly. Um, and yeah, it's human nature that we see flaws in others and not in ourselves, and that happens on a collective level as well, that it's easier to see other nations persecuting their dissidents, you know, arbitrarily detaining their publishers for journalism, which is what's happening here. Uh, but I think it's becoming so extreme that um, people can't stay silent anymore. I mean, that's that's what's happened for the doctors who've written this letter. They, you know, they, they need to stay feel the need to step up the uk government isn't so they need to to say look you know we can't be silent while a publisher is being arbitrarily detained and tortured on uk soil possibly to death uh, yes. so mm. and I more broadly the, the precedent it sets uh, there are sort of two precedents being set i think people have become more aware of the extradition precedent and that that stands to criminalize journalism but there's also a torture precedent being set where a publisher and journalist is being tortured with impunity in plain sight and, you know, democratic societies don't torture their publishers and journalists to death. So, you know, if that happens, if Julian Assange does die in prison, um, you know, that's really a shot straight at the heart of democracy. It's a nail in the coffin of democracy because, uh, you know, once we'll lose our chance to become a society that doesn't torture its journalists to death, and there's no coming back from that. Yeah, I mean, the argument on international law that seems to be, I mean, the U.S. just generally ignores international law full stop, especially especially this administration, uh, the current, the Trump administration. It's uh, they, they do undermine the U.N. at any turn. Any potential turn, they'll they'll use that opportunity to undermine the UN, international conventions. But but Britain has seemed to be uh, going shoulder to shoulder, right behind the United States. In mm -hmm. fact, if you look at what happened, what Ecuador allowed to happen, you know, total abrogation of uh, of treaties and conventions with, with regards to uh, uh, asylum or uh, you know rescinding citizenship, and mm -hmm. then allowing Britain to come in. And basically, do what is legally by by legal term terminology would be extraordinary rendition to step on Ecuadorian soil, i.e., the embassy in London, to apprehend somebody to render them back onto British soil. It's no different than going into another country and doing that. And and so that's so it seems like international law is completely out the window at every every aspect of this this case. Now, domestic law, domestic law. This is. It quite clearly is an unlawful detention for many reasons. We've we've outlined it. Nina Cross has outlined it, 21st Century Wire. He's being held as a Category A prisoner for a bail-skipping charge. He's a first-time offender. He shouldn't even be in jail right now. And mm -hmm. he's, again, not being, allowed to, uh, not being allowed to prepare for his defense. So the British 
judicial system domestically has been commandeered by the United States mm. in this case. And I, I was there at the, at the hearing in, in, in June or in July, whereby mm-hmm. the U.S. attorney was, was, was giving orders to the British judge. It's extraordinary. I mean, and Judge Arthnot, uh, she didn't bat an eyelid. It was like, yes, sir, yes, sir. Three bags full, sir. Wow. It's, it's so yeah, the U.S. has commandeered. It seems to me they've commandeered the judiciary in Britain in order to, in order to, to do what they're doing right now to, to Julian Assange. So I, I don't know where justice is going to be had. Is there is there a chance that Australia, for instance, your your home country, could could mount some international campaign to have him return to Australia? Or because I don't see a lot of leeway with with between the U.S. and the U.K. on this. But uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's certainly something that the Australian government could do if they chose to. So far, they have chosen not to, um, but they could certainly exercise. Diplomatic pressure um, and you know make efforts. Um, there's a there's a cross party parliamentary group in Australia that's working to bring that about. There's eleven parliamentarians who've formed a working group and they're attempting to um, you know to lead the Australian government to do exactly that to try and intervene on behalf of the legal and human rights of their citizen. So that's that's very hopeful that that group has formed. Um, and just this week, there's an event in the Queensland Parliament. They're hosting an event, which is an information session to correct misinformation about Julian Assange. So that is hopeful as well. And there's some senior politicians in, the, in this parliamentary working group. But so far, the Australian government, I mean, Niels Meltzer called the Australian government the glaring absentee in Julian Assange's case. And so far, you know, that hasn't shifted but uh, it's an extraordinary thing for doc- I mean, doctors normally don't wade into politics and public affairs. So it's it really speaks to the the magnitude and the gravity of the the ethical and human rights and medical um, travesty that we're facing. That doctors feel that they have to step in and try and urge the government to live up to its responsibilities, its legal and human rights responsibilities. Um, you know that's. Uh, it sort of speaks to how how uh, how badly um, you know human rights conventions and international law and rule of law itself are being um, you know disregarded by governments and authorities. And um, I, I wanted to ask you a question. You know, as a professional, you're mm-hmm. a professional uh, clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to expand on a point you made earlier. You said that psychological torture. Or you know, how how the person is being handled in, in in what environment and how this is controlled, and mm-hmm. psychological conditions can then manifest themselves into real physical ailments. Mm-hmm. And you talked mm-hmm. about you know uh, autoimmune or adrenal depletion mm-hmm. and all of these things that under intense long term stress and how that a lot of people will think that uh, life's just dandy in in Belmarsh prison. <laughs> Um, and so Tommy Robinson was in there for, you know, a month or something and, and he came out, you know, hopping and jumping around mm. and stuff like that. And people just have this assumption, mm. uh, that you're going to be well taken care of in there. Mm. And, but, but there is that chance that even if you have, uh, some access to doctors that there are systematic or systemic health issues that are compiling, that are building up over time 
that could end up sort of breaking you very quickly and very hard. That's right. Yeah. So I that's mean, explain, right. explain, yeah. explain that in his situation. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very difficult for people to put themselves in the shoes of someone, a situation that's so alien that, you know, you've never experienced. I mean, most people haven't been in maximum security lockdown. But, um, you know, to understand what it must be like psychologically for Julian Assange, I mean, aside from, aside from, I'll go into that in a second, the solitary confinement, but just the fact that you're rendered absolutely helpless while the world's most powerful nation, with all the money in the world, as many lawyers as it wants, 10 years to prepare, is getting ready to extradite you into what Nils Meltzer has said will be a show trial, um, a trial in the Eastern District of Virginia where no national security defendant has ever won a case, facing 175 years in prison, where... Uh, the UN Working Group on Average Attention and Nils Meltzer have said Julian Assange faces the very real risk of even more cruel and human and degrading treatment than he's experiencing now. So, And being prevented from preparing a defence, from reading the materials, um, you know, in the case against you, from having regular access to your lawyers, from having access to the internet, has, he hasn't had that for a long time, computers... It's really, I mean, I've said before, it's like being held bound and gagged in the basement while your assailant is outside sharpening their knives. I mean, it's really a threat, an absolute threat to his life hanging over his head and he's being rendered helpless. So helplessness in the face of threat is one of the most stressful and unbearable things for human beings. And that is there every day. And then so every minute of every day, actually. And then on top of that, uh, another thing that is deeply damaging to human beings is isolation and solitary confinement because um, we're, we're social animals, you know, we need interaction with other human beings and we also need a certain level of stimulation, just, you know, things to do, things to see, um, just input into our nervous systems in a good way. So, you know, Julian Assange is being isolated for at least 21 hours, hours a day, sort of effective solitary confinement. And, and for that time, he's been deprived of anything much to do other than think about, you know, the threats that face him without being able to defend himself against them. So it's a horrendous situation to put someone in. So, you know, chronically elevated stress hormones in those sorts of situations they they suppress immunity, which means you're susceptible to a whole lot of other diseases. They can even it, it even causes immune cells to pop, literally pop from chronically elevated stress hormones, um, and it puts the cardiovascular system under a lot of stress. All kinds of things get out of whack when your stress physi physiology is chronically elevated. I mean, human beings are designed to be stressed in short bursts. We can cope with that. That's fine. But when it's relentless and it never stops, it's very physically bad for us. So it's sort of attacking the body's, you know, being attacked from the inside out. And then as well as that solitary confinement, people don't really understand how serious that is. I think people think it just means you're lonely or a bit bored. But that's not the case. Even after just one week of solitary confinement, brain activity can decrease and that can be permanent even after just one week. After two weeks, concentration and memory impairments start to show up and then that can in, in influence people's ability to process information, to reason, to think. That can become very severely impaired. And that may well explain some of what we saw in the case management hearing where Julian Assange could barely 
answer questions about his name and his date of birth. I mean, you know, it's hard to know exactly what what's causing that, but it could be the effects of uh, so, you know, social isolation and understimulation. And you know, he's he had he was isolated in the Ecuadorian embassy, and now he's been even more isolated for months in Belmar. So it's not a trivial thing; it's very serious, and it's it's not an exaggeration exaggeration to say that solitary confinement really attacks the brain. So a certain level of social interaction and mental stimulation isn't just nice to have for human beings; it's it's necessary minimum necessary conditions for mental functioning. And it can take people decades for their cognitive function to recover after prolonged solitary confinement. Um, so obviously a question that that raises is fitness to stand trial and fitness for Julian Assange to engage in his own defence um, because, you know, there's a very real possibility that this prolonged psychological torture and solitary confinement is effectively rendering him you're helpless to engage in his own defence. So that, as part of um, the call to transfer him to from Belmarsh to an appropriate hospital setting, I mean that's another thing that needs to happen. He needs to be, um, he needs to be assessed. There needs to be a, a neuropsychological assessment, a structured neuropsychological assessment of his cognitive function to determine, you know, the impact of the solitary confinement and the consequences, you know, for his ability to stand trial. And, you know, someone who's experienced prolonged psychological torture against a backdrop of years of uh, medical neglect and fragile health, is it's a, that's a complex medical case. So, you know, a hospital, even a, even a hospital ward in a prison is not an appropriate environment for somebody with that level of health needs. What, what is needed is a hospital setting with multidisciplinary teams where consultation and liaison among specialists can take place, um, you know, and second and third opinions can be sought. And that's what's needed to protect against basically malpractice and um, mismanagement and to ensure competent care. So that is what Julian Assange needs. Uh, and, and at an even more basic level, you don't treat a victim of psychological torture by continuing to psychologically torture them. <laughs> you know, that is no medical environment for a torture victim, uh, which is kind of an obvious fact. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's another another point that comes out in the letter. Yeah, I, I, the thing that really struck me as well is this, uh, he has a potentially a serious uh, dental mm. issue that, that where he should have had a root canal seven years ago. Yeah. And, Absolutely. you know, anybody who's had an abscess or had anything, uh, any sort of serious uh, dental issue like that knows, knows the, 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 the physical and psychological uh, mm. pain involved there. And it's, it's, it's serious. And yeah. imagine not having any access oh. or not having it treated. I mean, it's just it's very hard to imagine. Yeah. 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 And physical pain. I mean, that's, a, you know, the form of torture as well. So, Constant physical pain. Mm. So he's a very sensitive uh, situation right now, mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. know, as a, as a medical professional, um, you know, how how would you rate this in terms of severity? Like in terms of critical need to act immediately versus well, it's potentially a problem. Could be a problem in a month. Could be a problem in six months. Could be a pro uh, where do you rate right now today on a scale of 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 one to ten? Ten being the most severe. And one being uh, not not an emergency, you know, where would you rate well, this as a doctor? It's up, 
It's up between nine and ten because of the unpredictability. It's it's urgent. I mean, that's the letter is saying this transfer needs to happen urgently. Um, you know, because these catastrophic health impacts are unpredictable. Nobody nobody can say when that might happen. Uh, so it, it could happen any time. Um, you know, so that's that needs to be taken very seriously. That's so it's urgent. It is urgent. And, you know, the fact that um, Julian Assange looked so, uh, he, he looked like he was premature aged and looked so frail and his health has been deteriorating rapidly and, and um, people who know him have been remarking on that. John Pilger, who's always been in the past fairly um, positive about Julian Assange's resilience, even he has been saying that, you know, he's, He's frightened that Julian Assange may die, that he's seeing a rapid deterioration. Julian Assange's lawyer, um, Jennifer Robinson, said that recently as well. Um, Craig Murray, who said he'd been sceptical about reports that um, you know Julian Assange was showing symptoms of psychological torture, says that now, and Craig Murray as an ambassador has seen victims of torture too, says now he agrees Julian Assange is, is presenting just like someone who's been tortured and that he's also now frightened and concerned that Julian Assange may die. So you've got there are warnings coming from all over the place and the situation's precarious. So it's that's why the letter is saying this is urgent. Yes. Well, well, hopefully, hopefully something's going to break uh, mm. on this issue. I mean, it, it can't continue. Of course, that would be a convenient outcome for both uh the U.S. and British governments, if uh, something that unfortunate w- was to happen while he was in custody, uh, there would be a lot of people who would, you know, let's say that would be their get-out-of-jail card, no pun intended. Yeah, well, no, well, that's the big worry because then, I mean, the, a lot of people have woken up to the threat that U.S. extradition um, poses and that charging Julian Assange under the Espionage Act poses, that that criminalizes journalism and sets a precedent where a state can prosecute journalists, you know, extraterritorially, which is a really shocking precedent. So uh, people are more alert to that precedent. So you're right, you know, it, it could be a way of achieving the same thing, of that chilling effect on journalism, of really going after public interest journalism, the kind of journalism that holds power to account without having to set that legal precedent. Um, but it's still a, pre- a precedent will still have been set that a journalist has been arbitrarily detained and tortured to death. So, yeah. um, you know, the end, I'm not a lawyer, I don't know what the accountability would be, but, um, yeah, you know, I, th- I think part of, part of it's not explicit in the letter, but part of um, the purpose of the letter is trying, you know, trying to get the UK government to think about the fact that, you know, there, there, there is responsibility if Julian Assange dies in prison on on the UK government's watch. They, they, they haven't done what needs to be done to protect his life and health. Yeah, yeah. The, no effort whatsoever to uphold even the most basic uh, international human rights standards in the face mm. of multiple multiple reports by different UN UN bodies. Mm. Mm, and there's the human right to health and the human right to prepare his own defence. I mean, even all of the the issues around democracy and, you know, the, the devastating um, precedent for democratic rights and freedoms, just in terms of human right to health and human right to prepare a defence, this needs to happen. 
No. We want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lisa Johnson, for your for your time and sharing this with us uh, this this evening on the Sunday Wire. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on and for talking about it. It's a really important subject, so I appreciate it. And we'll be seeing, uh, I, I, I do predict we will be seeing uh, Lisa and others advocating on this very issue in the coming weeks uh, in the press, but possibly in the mainstream press as well. We'll see if there's mm-hmm. how much interest there is. But uh, so I, good luck on, on, on also spreading the word uh, with the other media outlets. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're behind you and, and all the other doctors on this. Thank you, Patrick. Well, um, yeah, 21st Century Wire is leading the way, like you always do. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Lisa. There she goes. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Dr. Lisa Johnson, clinical psychologist from Sydney. You can also catch her work, and we've linked it on the show page, uh, her writings at New Matilda. She's written extensively on this story, but different aspects of Julian Assange's case. There's a link on the show page to the New Matilda. You can see Dr. Lisa Johnson's writings there. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to connect. We're going on the ground in South America after the break with our intrepid correspondent, Andre Vilcek. He's in Santiago, Chile, and there's a lot going on in Chile, in Bolivia, and also in Colombia. Andre's got the inside track on that. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. Stay right there. Hi, I'm Patrick Henningsen, host of the Sunday Wire, and you are listening to the Alternate Current Radio Network. <laughs> 